Uh, Matthew 28, if you'll join me there. Matthew chapter 28, as we continue to go through this book, we're in the last chapter of what we anticipate to be the second of four messages out of this chapter. Last week, we delved into the first ten verses, and Lord willing, today we're going to try to advance uh, five more verses, leaving five verses that we hopefully will spend two weeks on. As I mentioned last week, Brother Brian Connor will be with us uh, next week, and Miss Martha will be teaching in Sunday school so with the ladies' class over in the other building, so please make plans to be here. And then we'll be back into Matthew, Lord willing, uh, the last week of August, first week of September. Um, as you're finding your place, hey, can I just real quick, real quick aside, I hope you guys place great value on the song service. Um, that is an opportunity not just to worship the Lord, but the Bible talks about as we're singing and making melody in our heart to the Lord, we are actually teaching and instructing one another. As the Word of God richly dwells in our heart, leading us to sing, that in our singing of good doctrine, we are teaching and exhorting and building up. Uh, and that was happening with me this morning, uh, particularly the last two songs. Uh, good, Good Father. And... Um, singing that line, he calls us deeper still. And he calls us deeper still. I don't know if that's ever happened to you. There have been times where I know the Lord has let me go through some things that took me into a deeper relationship with him. And here's the reason I'm mentioning that, not to be mystical, and I have no idea what, what's going to happen. But I kind of woke up this morning thinking and feeling as though the Lord's going to call me deeper still. And it makes me nervous. I'm afraid. What might, he be, he do, what might he be doing to do that? Because there's usually some pain involved in those times. But he's good. And he's faithful. And every time I give it a little time and get on the other side and look back, I always see you were good. You knew what you were doing. But when we're on this side, ugh. <laughs> Can we just kind of keep it nice and calm and let things ride? And that may be, I don't know, but uh, the Lord is going to bring things into our lives. But I just kind of had that impression upon me this morning. Um, but we want his will because he's trustworthy. Matthew chapter 28. In a moment, we'll read verses 11 to 15. Before we do, let's reset the scene, okay? Here's the scene. Jesus has died on the cross. A man named Joseph of Arimathea a wealthy man who was one of Jesus' disciples, but a secret disciple and a member of the Sanhedrin, a member of the high Jewish court, asked for his body, and the Roman governor Pilate let him have it. And so Joseph buried Jesus. He wrapped his body in linen, linen wrappings and, and spices, 75 pounds with the help of a man named Nicodemus. And they buried the Lord on Friday afternoon before 6 p.m. So he's buried on Friday. He's in the, groom, in the tomb Friday, some of Friday, all of Saturday, and some of Sunday. We know that. But on Saturday, the Lord's enemies, the Jewish leaders, remembered something that he said, that he said he was going to rise again on the third day. They don't believe in that. They didn't. But they kind of thought that his disciples may steal the body and try to pull off some fake resurrection. And so they, too, go to Pilate on Saturday, the Sabbath, and ask, can we um, set a guard? And they want Pilate to set a guard. And Pilate gives them a guard, I believe, of Roman soldiers. That's not the most important thing in the text, but it does kind of change a little of the dynamic. 
And I think there's evidence in today's passage. These, again, are Roman soldiers that are guarding the tomb of the Lord. So that's on Saturday. Everything's going as it's supposed to go. But Sunday morning, around daybreak, there's these four ladies that head out. And they have some more spices. They're going to apply more spices as they anticipate the body of the Lord will start decomposing. And they want to kind of offset that stench. And so they're walking, and they're kind of concerned who's going to roll away this large stone. It's more than four ladies could move. There's a large stone guarding the front of the tomb. But not only that, but on Saturday when they set the Roman soldiers to guard the tomb against theft, they also put some seal, probably a cord, across the front of the tomb, and no doubt set in wax, putting some unique, distinguishable emblem in the wax so that if it's disturbed at all, people would know it's been tampered with. And the soldiers know their job is to make sure nobody moves that rock at all so that that cord is not moved or they get in big trouble. But on Sunday morning, as these ladies are coming, several things happen. There's a great earthquake, a great earthquake in Jerusalem. An angel descends from heaven, rolls the stone back. The women arrive and they end up having a conversation with this angel who tells them they don't need to fear. Now the Roman soldiers are terrified, literally trembling, and became as dead men. The angel invites the women. He tells them, we know who you are. I know who you are. You are seeking Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. So that devastated these ladies. He's not here. But there's a reason. Because as we said last week, tombs are for dead people and Jesus had come back to life. And so the angel invite the ladies into the tomb they go inside there's nothing but grave clothes the grave clothes are left intact as they were on his body except he's not in it and then they exit this angel says now go and tell the lord's disciples they don't know the information you have information they don't go tell the disciples that the lord is risen and they are to go up back up to galilee and then they will meet the lord there he has instructions for them They obey, and as they're leaving to go tell the disciples this awesome news, Jesus meets the women and says, greetings. They fall at his feet, literally grabbing him by the feet, and they begin to worship him. He receives this worship. He who had said that only God is to be worshipped now lets these women worship him. That tells us who Jesus is. But then he himself, if you have your Bible open before we read verse 11, look at verse 10. Then Jesus said to them, as these women are at his feet worshipping him, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. So the angel said the same thing. Now the Lord, having received their worship, gives them the same instruction. Go tell my brothers, meaning the disciples, they are to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So we have a meeting. We have an engagement in Galilee, and they need to soon start heading that way. Go tell them the good news. Now today's text. Ready? Let's read verse 11 to 15. Now before I read it, quick little insight, today's message is going to be different in a way that the message two weeks ago was different, okay? We had some apologetics, and as I said there, this is not a time for us to apologize for what we believe. This is a time for us to use historical facts and what the Bible says and put some reasoning together and use our brains to reach some conclusions and some truth that the Bible teaches. And so, if I could say it this way, today's Per, let, me, let me go ahead and tell you, there's not going to be a lot of goosebump moments. Here's what that means. Not a lot of goosebump moments, but it, we're going to be engaging our mind, trying to process what this, these five verses, how they Im- impact our faith. So the goal today is for us to walk away with faith in the resurrection of Jesus, 
to have our faith, you say I already have it, to have that faith built up in the resurrection of Jesus and, let's go the whole way, to be ready to defend our faith. This is what we're after today. To have faith, to build our faith, and have so much to a degree in our mind that we are ready to defend why we believe what we believe. So with that in mind, the Lord has now sent these ladies. You go tell my disciples, give them this message, who are my brothers. Now verse 11. While they, the women, were going, behold, some of the guard, meaning some of the soldiers, some stayed behind. Some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. Talking about what happened that morning. So they go and they meet with the chief priests and they tell them all that I just explained. All the facts. And when they, the chief priests, had assembled. So we've got to have a meeting. So they call the Sanhedrin together, the Jewish council. I'm assuming one Joseph of Arimathea is not invited. Verse 12. And probably if Nicodemus were one of the 71, then he's not invited. But we probably have 60-some, counting the high priests, that are there for this meeting. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel. So when we read those two words, taken counsel, that means there's more than what we're getting ready to read. We're going to read the final summation. There's a whole long discussion. Taking motions, suggestions. What do you guys think? Verse 12 again. When they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. Here's the conclusion of the council. They gave a sufficient, which means a large sum of money, to the soldiers and said, tell people, here's your job. We're giving you, take us back to your buddies, this is for you guys, split it up. Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away. While we were asleep. That's your message. We're giving you this money. Do you understand? Repeat after. His disciples came by night and stole his body while we were asleep. Okay, got it. Tell them that's the message. Here's your money. Verse 14. They also add if. So here's the Sanhedrin talking to the soldiers. And if this comes to the governor's ears. If Pilate ends up hearing about what has happened. We will satisfy him. Don't you worry about this. We will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And Matthew says, as he's writing in the mid-60s A.D., he's writing about what happened around 30, 31, 32 A.D. Matthew says, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. This is still the official version of what happened with the body of Christ is that his disciples came by night and stole him away while the Roman soldiers were asleep. Would you notice with me three things this morning? Number one, the Jews lied about Jesus' resurrection. We're going to look at verses 11 to 14. The Jews straight up, and by the Jews, I don't mean the whole nation. I mean the Jewish leaders of this time period flat out lied about the resurrection of Christ. They had information, but they buried that information. So what happened? Verse 11, while they were going, so you have two things happening. Women are going to tell the good news to the disciples. And now these guards that are left at the tomb with it open. And finally this angel is left and these women have left on their assignment. No doubt they go in and look and see nothing but grave clothes left. And all of a sudden they have a major dilemma. What are we going to do? Verse 11, behold some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. Now... They've got to go share this information. This is an uncomfortable meeting. I want to revisit. It, are these now Jewish 
soldiers of the temple police force because why are they going now to, after this happens, why are they running to the chief priest and not to Pilate? So verse 11 may make you think apparently maybe these are Jewish soldiers. But no, keep in mind there's a reason. They're going for coverage, for help, for safety. Well, you kind of run, run a, a, a block for us against Pilate. Verse 14 says, if it comes to Pilate's ears, to the governor's ears, we're going to protect you against that. Let's be real clear. If, if, if the Jews on Saturday come and ask Pilate for Roman soldiers and he says, you have your own soldiers, you can make it as secure as you can, then he doesn't care what happens to the body of the Lord at that point. That is your problem. Jewish soldiers would have no recourse with Pilate. He doesn't care about that. But if these are Roman soldiers, they're going to get in big trouble. And so they're going toward the Jewish chief priests in Sanhedrin for help. Will you please give us some safety if he were to hear this message? And so off they go. Now picture verse 12. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel. So that meeting is going to be called based off of what the, what the soldiers share with the chief priests. Picture that initial meeting. Here come these soldiers, some of them, some left behind at the, at the tomb. And they come up and they want to meet with the chief priest. Picture how that went down. In my mind, it probably went something like this. The chief priests are highly busy. They're in the middle of a Passover week. Things are, are a flurry around the temple. And they see some of these Roman soldiers and they recognize these are the guys that are supposed to be over there. They bring them up and they ask them, what are you doing here? Why are you not at the tomb? Are there any guys still at the tomb? Yes, there are. Okay, then why are you not here? Yeah, we need to talk to you about that. What do you mean need to talk about that? It's still Saturday. I'm sorry. It's still the third day. We need you there today. Today is the third day. It's the big day. In fact, we want you there through tomorrow, Monday, because somebody may interpret tomorrow is the third day. What are you doing here? And then they have to unload on them and tell them, you were with us. You know that there was a large stone over the face of the tomb. And you know there was this cord. And you guys were there, saw the ceiling of the tomb and the tamper-proof method that we set there. You know that we were guarding the tomb. So here they have to relay. We guarded the tomb all day Saturday through Saturday evening. We guarded the tomb Sunday morning early in the darkness. Right? That's why you're here. This morning, Sunday, this morning... Around daybreak, as it was just starting to get light, there was this earthquake. I'm picturing the chief priest. Yes, we felt it here. It was a big earthquake. I don't know what's going on. Had one Friday, had another one this morning. Yes. But at this earthquake, there was this, again, in their minds, there was this creature. He comes down out of the sky, out of heaven. It's the most scary thing. We've seen a lot. We don't get scared. We were trembling. This thing was massively power. It was bright. I mean, it was just frightening. And then it came and rolled the stone away. And right about then, Jewish chief priest, rolled the stone away. The tomb is open. You got to hear it. The tomb is open. Yes, hang on. Did that creature do anything with the body? No, he did nothing with the... Okay, okay. Okay, he rolls the stone away. You got to see that. Yes. And then there's these women. And they're coming. They have like spices. I think they're the ones that watch the whole thing, being, him being buried. And they come and they have spices and then they're coming. And they have this conversation and this creature tells these women not to be afraid. They actually go inside. And then the creature leaves and then the women leave. And so we go look inside the tomb. Okay, 
Did the women go off with the body? No, the women did not leave with the body either. Okay, well, good. Because I thought for a second you were going to tell us the body's gone. Well, that's what we got to talk about. <laughs> After they leave, he leaves, they leave, we go in the tomb, and there's nothing but clothes. And you can picture the Jewish chief priest just going ballistic. And no doubt furious. But then the Roman soldiers get furious back. What are we supposed to do? We literally did everything in our power. There is nothing more. We don't know what happened. All we know is that tomb is empty. And it was empty before that creature opened up the tomb. That's, that's, the, that's the version. And in my mind, again, reading between the lines, I'm picturing the Jewish chief priest saying, All right, you've done the right thing by coming to us first. We need to have a meeting. You guys just chill out here for a little while. Call them. Get the group together. They bring everyone together, and they call the Sanhedrin. And, of course, they end up coming together and come concluding verse 13 as their big suggestion to solve the problems. But, guys, I have a problem with verse 12. Would you look at verse 12? And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, here's their conclusion. They gave a sufficient, a large sum of money to the soldiers, and they tried to buy them off. So, guys, I'm going to have two questions, and then I'm going to get into your first note this morning. I know we had a long introduction. Here's my two questions. Number one, when the Sanhedrin met, why did they not deal with the facts that were relayed to them by the guards? Think about that. If you're on the, a member of the Sanhedrin, and these guys, their life is in danger. They have now lost. It doesn't matter how supernatural the reason is. It does, and obviously God did this. God and the, and the Holy Spirit and the Lord Jesus resurrected himself. God did this and God sent an angel. And yes, there was an earthquake. Pilate is not going to hear any of those details. The bottom line, you had an assignment. You failed. I can have you executed. And they know this. They can die for what has happened. This is being relayed. And now the Sanhedrin, knowing these guys aren't faking, they're scared to death. They're terrified. Thankfully, they'll come to, to them. What are we going to do about this? Why did they not deal with the facts of the empty tomb and what it really meant? Why did they not deal with the testimony? In my mind, what I think should have happened is the equivalent, whatever they had, of the whiteboard. They should have got the best handwriter among them said, get your marker over here. Get up here, guys. Let's start throwing out facts. Everything we know about this man, Jesus, write it on the board. Write small. And they just start writing. writing. Every fact you can have, start writing it all in. Now, get our best Bible teachers in here. Bring them in. Is this anywhere in the Old Testament? Actually, yeah, that's over in Psalms this. And that's in Isaiah. And that and that and that. And boom, boom. Can we put passages? It, it should have been time for us. Look at all the fulfilled prophecies this man has done. Now let's talk about his miracles. How many of you know someone's been affected? And all of a sudden, well, my, and this and that. And I've seen with my own eyes. One after another. Then his prediction should have been brought into play. This is what they should have done. After that, they should have brought in not only his predictions, but let's talk about the perfect timing of the earthquake on Friday, right at 3 o'clock as he dies. The earthquake this morning. Let's talk about the torn curtain in the temple that was right at 3 o'clock that is unexplainable. 80-foot thick curtain from top to bottom tears apart at 3 o'clock right as this man dies, having cried out, it is finished, saying that he's paid for sins. Let's start putting all these facts. Here's my second question. Why did no one in the Sanhedrin stand up, knowing they would be booed? But why didn't they stand up and just saying, guys, listen, is it time for us to rethink our position about this man, Jesus? No, boo, get, be quiet. No, no, listen. He called this. 
He said it specifically. He said we would be doing this. He said he was going to rise again the third day. This is the third day. We did everything we could to stop him. We couldn't stop him. The tomb is empty. Is it time for us to adjust our message? But no, they don't. What do they do? They jump immediately to a cover-up story. Write this thought. It seems to me that the Jewish leaders had already made up their mind they will not believe in Jesus no matter what. The evidence just keeps coming. No matter what happens, they will not believe in Jesus. And we say, why? I want to propose to you one reason they, will, they refuse is because to believe in Christ would be to strip them of their power and of their authority and, again, of their positions and of the religion as they know and all the money that comes in their way. Write that thought because I think we find that sometimes even among us here in America today. Sometimes there are people who do not want to hear anything. They don't want to take an honest look at the evidence that there is a creator. And that the Bible really is the word of God. They don't want to hear it. They just bury it. They look for things that try to offset what the Bible teaches. Why? Because if you accept that there is a God who created all things, then we are creatures who answer to this God, and this is His Word, and now we're responsible to Him and accountable for what this Word says. And so here's what some people do. I don't believe it. Yeah, but what about this fact and this fact and this evidence? I don't want to hear it. And they'll hold on to one or two little things over here. They've made up their mind. I'm not going to believe because to believe would be to change my life, and I don't want to change my life. I want to live for me. And that's where the Sanhedrin was at with Christ. So now I want to take a few minutes, and it's going to take me a few minutes to do this, but I want to drive this point home, because as we're reading a passage, we may look at verses 11 to 15 and say, wow, and I will admit, I thought this last week. Okay, next week will be a nice short one, because it's just a few things. But then as we look at the text, are there any principles that we are to take away, like timeless principles? That we here this morning could learn and apply to our life. And I want to give you a simple one. So here the 60-some leaders of Israel get together and they're throwing out suggestions. And their best suggestion is verses 12 and 13. So what does that tell us? Would you write this down? Not everyone who claims to be a spiritual leader really is a spiritual leader. Learn that, ladies and gentlemen. Not everyone who claims to be it, they may have a title of a spiritual leader, they may dress like a spiritual leader, they may have some lingo like a spiritual leader, but not everyone who claims to be a true spiritual leader really is one, and we need to be aware of that. If you've been with us for weeks and weeks and months, then you realize, wow, these guys have a real pattern. When they were trying to convict Jesus in the Jewish phase of the trial, what did they do? They broke multiple straight up commands out of the word of God dealing with trials, judicial trials. They broke those to try to get a, a crooked, corrupt conviction against Christ. They have their own rabbinical, their rabbis, laws and rules concerning courtroom justice. They broke many of those, put together the biblical rules and the rabbinical rules. This group broke over 15 of these in Jesus' illegal nighttime trial. Then after that, number three, they end up blackmailing the Roman governor Pilate. They blackmail. That's not spiritual leaders that do those things. 
Spiritual leaders don't just blow by the laws of God and blackmail people. Now what do we find? They raid the treasury of the money that's been given to God in worship of God. Take that money and misappropriate it. And put it in areas that it was not intended for to further their own personal agendas. What does that money go to? It is for bribery. Bribery is not a method of spiritual leaders. What is the bribery for? To stop hurting people? Please, we'll give you this money if you'll stop. Nope, nope. It's to have people go out and tell what everyone in the group knows is a lie. Think about that. These supposed spiritual leaders are promoting lies by using bribery, using misappropriated funds of God after they blackmailed the Roman, Roman governor and having broken the laws of God and the rabbi's teaching. These are not spiritual leaders. Ladies and gentlemen, the Bible teaches that when we follow the counsel and advice of ungodly leaders and counselors, there's almost always a heavy price to pay. I let my mind go after just thinking of two people because it's been recently in my personal private devotional reading. Some of you will remember there was one, this, one of the sons of David was a young man named Amnon. Amnon might have been the oldest son of David, I think. Amnon had a sick fascination, sexual fascination for his own half-sister named Tamar. Amnon, the son of David, lusts for his own sister, half-sister, Tamar. But he has a friend named Jonadab. And Jonadab tells him, he, he knows, hey, i got a plan for you. Act like you're sick. And tell the king, your father, that you want your sister Tamar to come take care of you while you're sick. And then whenever, when she's there, run all the guards and everybody out of the room. And when everybody's away, then you can have your way with her. Sick feeling voiced to a sick mind who comes up with a sick plan that is actually enacted by the ungodly Amnon. Tells David he's sick. David sends Tamar. Tamar starts taking care of her brother. When everybody's gone, Amnon rapes his sister, ruins her life. But here's the point. What ended up happening after taking the, the great advice of Jonadab? Her life is ruined. Her reputation is ruined. She's devastated. She's lost her purity. But not only that, she has a full brother, half-brother of Amnon. The full brother's name is Absalom. And Absalom doesn't forget it. And Absalom ends up killing Amnon, his brother. It cost him his life listening to the wrong advice. That's David's son. David has another son named Solomon. So the first king of Israel was Saul. David is the second. David's son Solomon is the third. Then Solomon dies, and his son is named Rehoboam. And Rehoboam is approached by the leaders of the ten northern tribes, and they want to know, hey, what kind of king are you going to be? Your father was brilliant. He's the wisest man in all the world. And God blessed him. And the kingdom's been blessed. But man, he ran a, a very tight ship. It's very difficult, very strict. What kind of leader are you going to be? We want three days and we'll, we'll, we'll decide if we're going to follow you. So Rehoboam asks his father's older counselors. And they say, listen, your father was strict. You would be wise if you'd throw a bone to these people. Give some concessions. Give them some things. And they'll follow you and everything will be great. And then he brought in his younger advisors and says, what do you guys think I should do? And his younger advisor says, if I was you, I'd tell those people, you think my father was bad? My father's thigh is like my little pinky, what I'm the kind of king I'm going to be. Well, he has two choices. I'm going to listen to these guys or listen to these guys. 
He listens to the younger guys, goes out and threatens the northern kingdom, the northern tribes. I am going to be way more strict, way more difficult, much more overbearing. And the ten northern tribes said, if you're going to do that, then we're going to separate. And the kingdom was divided. There's a price to pay when we listen to wicked counsel, ungodly counsel. Now, I could move on right there, but I want to take just a moment. Let's all, all of us, answer the following question. Who advises you? Put a name on it. Who helps formulate your beliefs? Who helps formulate your worldview? Who influences you? Who has your ear that when they say something, you give weight to that? Who influences you to such a point that it affects how you spend your time? What kind of person, what group of people affects how you spend your money? When it's major life's decisions and you really want help, who do you go to? What kind of people do you go to? Hey, I'm not trying to be mean. I'm not trying to be some old guy, you know. But you young people, I want to be honest with you. If you're one of our young people here this morning, you've got to be careful that your, your worldview is not shaped more by social media than it is by the word of God. That's going to want to dominate your thinking. If you're going through life and they have all kind of influence on what you believe. And how you spend your time. And how you spend your money. And, and your major life decisions. Because that's what people that live out in those areas do. And, and they look great. And, and man, I admire them. Be careful. Don't give them your heart. Don't give them your mind. And the older people among us would say, that's right, amen, that's right, you tell them, Brother Jeff. But now the older folks, let's be careful that you don't allow some news channel. You say, but I'll watch this one or that one. Be careful that you don't let some news channel do all your thinking for you so that they just shape and form your belief system and your worldview. And you assume everything my channel says is right and all the other channels are wrong. Be careful because they also have an agenda. Don't assume the other side never says anything right. And our guys always get it right. There's a lot going on in the country. Just let the dust settle. Let's see where it all goes. A lot of suspicious things. Be careful reaching conclusions that you say that can't be. Careful. Let's see what comes to pass. Some among us. This is you. You have a friend and they're unsaved and they've been your friend a long time or they become your friend because you work together at the same job for decades and that's who you run to for your advice or let's go ahead and say it let's go ahead and say it an unsaved family member or unsaved family members let's hey family wants best for us they want the best for us but if they're unsaved then one-third of them is not even alive they have a body soul and a spirit their spirit is not even alive they, if, if their advice to you is not based on scripture, how can it be if, if they don't even have a relationship with God? They may want the best for you, but don't let them ultimately decide how you're going to spend your time and your life and your life's decisions and your money. Be careful. Even family that is unsaved can't be trusted. So here's what I would ask you. Who has your ear? And ask yourself, does this person's life ultimately lead me to God if I were to follow their example? And ultimately ask this question. Is their counsel Bible-based or is it culture-based? That's what you need to answer. The best Israel had to offer, these 60-some men, and their best plan is verses 12 and 13. Now let's look at a little bit of apologetic style study. Would you look at verse 13? 
And they said to them, we're going to give you this money, and here's, here's our solution. Tell people, they tell the soldiers, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Think about that. His disciples came by, okay, got it, yeah, got it. his disciples came by night, stole him away while we were asleep. All right, that's our message. And off they go. They don't want to give that message. It's an embarrassing thing to them. It's not the truth, but that's the message they end up carrying. R.T. France writes the following. I want to give you a quick side note about verse 13. Now hear it. The fact that the priests must resort to this lie underlines that the tomb really was empty. That is basic, I realize. You say, Jeff... How do we know the tomb is empty? Because they never said, the tomb is not empty, go. Oh, see, right there's the body. They did not do that. The fact that they have to come up with a lie to answer why the tomb is empty proves the tomb is empty. So we know the tomb of the Lord Jesus Christ is empty. And there's different views about why it's empty. They're promoting one that his body was stolen while the guards were asleep. If this was Wednesday night, I would give you like three or four minutes, and I would ask you just to close your eyes. Picture that scene. Picture the scene, and I would have you write down anything that you, comes to your mind that like shows that is the dumbest solution that's ever. It's the best one they could have. It's the best they come up with, but it really is a foolish answer to what happened. Let's write down like six questions we might ask that are obvious questions. Question number one. So here's, here's what's happening. What, everybody with me? He's risen. No, he didn't. Yes, he did. The tomb is empty. It's empty because his disciples stole the body. Question one. Hold on. Isn't that exactly why you had the guard set in place so urgently? Isn't that the reason? You can't use that excuse. Didn't you run to Pilate because you had this fear that his disciples were going to try to steal the body? And that's why you set these Roman soldiers. Estimated between 12 and 30 Roman soldiers is the estimate. Why did you, isn't that why you had them set? You can't use that excuse. Question number two. They stole the body while the guards were asleep. Question two. So are you saying that not even one soldier stayed awake? Not one soldier stayed awake. Not one. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, I don't have time. If you ever want to study this, buy you a copy of Josh McDowell's evidence or new evidence that demands a verdict, and you'll read about 80-some pages like I did on Wednesday. And just go through there and you'll find all this proper thinking and apologetical type thinking about what is going on here. In that you will find evidence of Roman soldiers who, if one of them fell asleep on a job, there were severe repercussions. And if it was an extreme case, they could be killed. They could be killed for falling asleep on the job. What I'm trying to tell you this morning is not one soldier would have fallen, not one would have fallen asleep. And they're trying to make us think that all of them... But not even one stayed awake. Question three. Wouldn't moving the massive stone wake up the soldiers? For context, let's assume the baptistry right here, right back there, that baptistry is the tomb. And there's a large stone right there. And I'm one of the Roman soldiers. And we're literally right here. Uh-oh, we all somehow fall asleep. We know this is a rock-hewn tomb. It's a rocky area. It's chiseled out, and these rocks are going to go Some are, are we to believe that in the night, here comes these 11 guys, or two or three or four or five, and they sneak by, and they don't accidentally twist a rock here and there and make some noise? 
Are all the guys that were there, they're all heavy sleepers? Is that what you're telling? Not one light sleeper among them. I should have been there. <laughs> I would have heard it. Remember when you were young and you slept so deeply? Those were the good old days. Not one light sleeper? Oh, no, no, they came while we were. We were out. We were out. We were all of All of us. Deep sleep. Oh, okay. Question four. Maybe I'm simple, but what kind of grave robbers would actually take the time in those conditions to remove all the grave clothes and then reshape them back in the shape of the body? That doesn't make sense. Here they come with their torches, twisting all over the rocks, grunting and pushing this large stone. Thankfully, none of you guys woke up. And while they're in there, somebody gets the, good, the bright idea. Hey, let's don't just take his body as it is. Let's unravel all of this and then take time to... Yeah, you really expect us to believe these things. Number five is the big one. How can anyone say what really happened while they were asleep? Y'all know this would not go. This wouldn't fly in any court in Anderson. This wouldn't fly in any court in America. Your Honor, uh, I'm bringing a charge against so-and-so. Why is that? Yeah, he stole from me the other night. Really? You saw him? No, he did it while I slept. How do you know what happened? I, I just know he did it. Do you have cameras? No, I don't have cameras. I just know he's the one that did it, and you need to make him pay. How can anybody say what happened while they were sleeping? And then number six, we had to delete several, so I narrowed it down to these six. Think. Knowing what we've learned about the Jews, if these Roman soldiers really fell asleep on the job and let the body be stolen, that they were so vigilant and wanting to be guarded, what would they have been leading the cry of? We want these soldiers executed. Why are you Jews not pursuing and calling for the guards to be executed? That's the sixth one. I want to give you another one that we didn't write, we thought of later. If you really were a put yourself in their shoes. If you're the Roman army, you have all the power. If you really fell asleep, all of you fell asleep, and you wake up and you are absolutely sure that his disciples stole the body in the night while you slept, what would be your first thing you would do? You wouldn't run to Pilate. Nor would you run to the Jewish chief priest. What would you do? You would start hunting down Jesus' disciples, putting the squeeze on them until they finally told you where they put the body. Running to the Jewish priest is not the natural response of Roman soldiers who have just lost a body. This doesn't make sense. I ask you this morning. Rewind 2,000 years. You're one of the Lord's disciples. You're one of the 11. Right there's the tomb. And this is all rocky area. And there's 12, 18, 30 Roman soldiers. What is your plan to steal the body? This is not a building that has a back door or a trap door. This is a rock-hewn tomb that just happened the day before. They've been at home for the Sabbath. What would be your plan? I have never been able to come up with one. I have no plan to get by these guys. The, 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 the disciples have two little small swords among them. Here's this Roman army just... Heavily armored. They have no chance. I would also ask you this question. Are we really to believe that here these 11 disciples of the Lord who were so afraid in the Garden of Gethsemane that they ended up running away in the night for fear. Listen, while they still believed, convinced Jesus is the Messiah on Thursday night, they believed Jesus is the Messiah, yet they run in fear. Are we to believe that now on Sunday morning early, after he's been dead 
for a couple of days. Now all of a sudden in a state of confusion and disbelief that he probably is not the Messiah. They have, they're changing their thinking. Are we to believe that these guys suddenly muster up the courage to try to sneak by Roman soldiers that they know if they're caught they will be killed instantly? Why? For a body that is dead that they assume is going to remain dead so that they can fake a resurrection. That makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. That's the dumbest thing that's ever been promoted. And that's the best they could come up with. Others today, recently, and I will not even go into the reasons why these are so foolish. Some have tried to say all those 600 disciples who saw the Lord, followers of Christ, they all had a hallucination. Some have said they went to the wrong tomb to check the wrong tomb. Yeah, like the Jews would have let that slide. Some have tried to say uh, that Jesus was just in a swoon and being in the nice, cool tomb revived him. And then he escaped after, after you know, being re-energized. Right. Try to escape from grave clothes and push a rock away and sneak by guards. It doesn't hold water. These are foolish things. Number two. Verse 15 Let's look at the power of greed and fear. Real simple, straightforward verse. The power of greed and fear. Verse 15 says, so they took the money. Took the money and did as they were directed. What that means, they take the money and lied. Okay, if you want to pay us that, okay, that much money, here's our story. We got it. They went back, told the guards, and every, apparently everyone is in on it. Verse 15 again. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. They lied. Guys, a while ago, I kind of paused for a little bit. We kind of hovered over a principle. Be careful who you're listening to. Now I want to hover for a moment. Let's talk about what the Bible, not exhaustively, let's just kind of learn what the Bible impresses upon us about lying. We don't preach about this a lot. You know what? Lying, I think, comes under the, the category of sins that among Christians it's like, well, there's big lies and there's little white lies and we find it comfortable to live a Christian life and still go around lying. We would not want to know how many lies have been told by the folks in this room just in the last week. Lying. God hates a lying tongue. In the book of Proverbs, when the writer of the Proverbs is putting together a list of seven things the Lord hates, he hates a proud look and he hates a lying tongue. You want to know what one of the last things is? A false witness. A false witness whose story doesn't match. God hates. Two of the seven things that God hates has to do with lying. Now here you say, then why do we lie if we know that God hates lying? Here's why we lie. Lies, okay, it's here at first. Lies give now. Lies give us something now. That's why we do it. Okay, I'm going to lie because it provides something for me now. But it makes us pay later. Lying gives now, but it costs later. The truth, the truth often costs right now, but it pays off later. Let's write that thought. God hates a lying tongue. He hates what they, these men have been bribed to do. He hates what they agree to do. God hates lying. Lying Gives us something now, but it takes it away later. The truth costs us now, but we know that it ends up paying off later. Here are these Roman soldiers. Put yourself in their place. They know for a fact something supernatural happened at that tomb, and they were afraid. I, I thought about this. Were they not afraid that that creature would come back and do something against them? No doubt they were. And if this thing came from heaven, then 
Is this God out there going to do something if we go along with this plan? So why do they do it? Why do they lie? They fell prey to two things that are very powerful forces. Very powerful forces. Number one, they fell prey to the force of the fear of death. That creature may come back, but if we don't tell this lie, Pilate is going to have us killed. They're afraid of dying. And number two is the love of money. I'll go ahead and mention that probably before today is over, probably before today is over, certainly before the week is over, everyone in here will have an opportunity and you're going to be tempted to lie. The question is, will you lie? God hates a lying tongue. Why did they do it? Fear of death and the love of money. Follow me if you would. Put you a marker right here. We're going to find a couple of verses. Would you go to 1 Timothy chapter 6? Let's run over there very quickly. We want to find something here. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Why did they lie? Well, they had the love of money. 1 Timothy chapter 6. I'm not going to read the verses before, but I want to kind of point this out. Here's what, the, here's what the, um, Paul is writing to Timothy, a, a young pastor. And he says, Timothy, there's two things that when they come together, this is a good place to be. Now watch. Godliness. Godliness with contentment. That's a good place to be. I want everybody to hear that. Godliness. Have a godly life and contentment. Can I kind of give a version of contentment? Watch. So here is where our needs are not quite met. We're in some level of poverty. And here's where our needs are met. Needs are met. We have everything we need. Needs are met. Content. Godliness with needs met. Verse 8 talks about food and clothing, the idea of shelter. We got what we need. Godliness with contentment, that's great gain. That's a great place to be. So there's poverty, different levels, and then there's needs met. And then there's like needs met, and then got a little extra. Got more than we need. And then we got like a good bit more than we need. But then as we get up here, we're moving up to like rich, like wealthy, like crazy rich. Like I can just be frivolous and throw it away and be loose and free because and, I have excess. I have lots of excess. Look what the Bible says about that category. Look at verse number 9. But those who desire, and the idea desire is not just, not just this, oh, that would be nice to have like crazy excess. Not just talking about that. I mean, desire, you crave it. This is part of you. You're hungry for this. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmless desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Why? For the love of money. It's not money. It's the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. And pierce themselves through with pierce themselves with many pangs. Yesterday I wrote this thought, and I want to share this. Be real simple. What is the Bible teaching us here? It's what these guys fell prey to. They're out telling known lies. Part of the reason is the love of money. So let's just keep real simple. Check your heart. If someone does not possess great desire, I mean, like, I mean, it's really part of their, it's part of them. It's their identity. If someone does not possess a great desire to be rich, lots of excess, then they're not as likely to be tempted by the lust for money. It just doesn't hold as much power. Why? Because they're not consumed with being rich. 
Conversely, check your heart. Those who crave being rich, you are especially susceptible to certain sins. That idea of a root of all kinds of sin, what that means is picture a room and we all have areas in that room. And these rooms represent types of temptation. Everybody in here, myself included, we are all tempted by certain things. But there are some things that just don't tempt me. I want you all to understand, I'm not, I'm not putting myself up here in any way. Please don't hear that. I'm just telling you, in my little world, you could put every drug, everything that you smoke, shoot, snort, swallow, alcohol, put it in all of its forms right in front of me, leave me in that room for three hours. I'm not going to touch it. It just doesn't move the needle for me. And I know there's some of you like, oh, it, I, I, I crave it. I want it. It just doesn't do that for me. That door is not a, a thing for me. But if you long to be rich, there's a door, an avenue, that that opens up a whole set, a category of sin that is going to tempt you. Not loving money builds an immunity to bribery. If someone were to come up to you and to say, hey, listen, you do that, and I'm going to give you this. We'll pay you that, and we'll set that up. The person who's just not driven by being rich can very easily say, ah, no, thank you, you got the wrong guy, that's not me. What? There are people who think everybody has their price. Oh, yeah, well, what if I do this? No, thank you. Not interested. That really doesn't move the needle for me. I'm not consumed with love for money. Check your heart. Now look back at verse 9 again. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and into a snare. Put that back with what we find in verse 15. So they took the money and did as they were directed. As I've said already, you remember back in verse 12, they gave them a sufficient sum, a large sum of money. The Jews, especially during the week of Passover, had plenty of money. It was a very lucrative, and I use that word on purpose for the way that they did Passover. Passover was a lucrative week, and so they could get a large sum. We don't know how much it was, but it was a massive amount of money that they gave these Roman soldiers to tell these lies. But, oh, I want you to get this thought. The Jewish priests had no concern whatsoever for the souls of the Roman soldiers. I want you to get this. These Roman soldiers have eternal souls. They're in heaven or hell right now, and they're only one or the other. Here they are in the land of Israel. These Jews who claim to have this, they're the only nation in the world that has a relationship with God. They talk about how, how sacred the Bible is. They talk about Jehovah, Yahweh, and the Scriptures. What does this tell these Roman soldiers? At the end of the day, you talk about God and you talk about the Bible. But when the rubber meets the road and you guys get in a pinch, you run Jerusalem just like Rome has done. You are no different than us. So be careful, Christians, when you give in to things like lying and you fall prey to the love of money, then the world around you is going to say, yeah, that's what I thought. You do all these crazy things where you go down there on, Saturday, on, on Sunday and Wednesday and you study the Bible, but at the end of the day, you're just like me. They're taking notes. They end up, in essence, damning these men to hell because they don't care about their souls. All they care about is covering up an actual resurrection. And what's sad is it appears that every one of the Roman soldiers took the bribe. If that were not the case, I don't think the end of verse 15 could be true because Matthew says this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. All it would take is one Roman soldier to say, hey, wait, wait, wait. 
We were bribed. They never broke. How sad that is. So I want to ask you a question. And only you know the answer. What would it take for you to lie? What's your price? What would it take for you to cheat? To steal? A little more on your tax return? Is that all it takes? Hey, let's do this and let's say that because we'll get a few hundred, is it a few hundred dollars? Is it a promotion? Will you lie and cheat and steal and sin on purpose for a promotion? Will you lie and cheat and steal intentionally for a little more money, for a bonus, a raise? Is that all it takes or to get you out of trouble? I'm in trouble, so I'll, I'll do what they say because it'll keep me out of trouble for a while. Is that all it takes? Be careful. I want to ask us all again, how do you get your money? Do you get your money by producing a good or by providing a service that is open, that is honest, that is useful, that is godly? Is what you do to earn your money? Check your heart right now. How do we get our money? Is it open, honest, useful, godly? You say, well, Jeff, not everybody is in full-time ministry. Yeah. Jesus was a carpenter. And Joseph, his, his father, earthly father, was a carpenter. That's a godly way to earn money. Is how you earn your money a godly way to earn money? Why were these men tempted to lie and end up telling a lie? The love of money gripped their heart. That was part of it. But I think the stronger one is even back in Matthew chapter 10. Flip over there. You're in chapter 28. Go back 18 chapters. Look at Matthew chapter 10, verse number 28. Matthew 10, verse 28. Jesus was sending out the 12 disciples. Notice verse 28. Jesus says, and do not fear those who kill the body. That's a command. You say, but they're going to kill my body. It's very natural. I understand. But here's what Jesus says. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Don't fear them. Don't even give them that. Even when they're about to kill you, do not fear them. Why? How? Verse 28 continues, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Don't fear them. Don't fear. You say, Jeff, it's persecuting. Guys, listen. If you and I will live godly, if you and I will carry out the great commission of Matthew 28, verses 16, verses 18 to 20, if we will do that, there is going to be persecution. It comes in a lot of forms. Persecution may be slander, mockery, rejection. Your property taken from you. You can be beaten. You can be imprisoned. You can actually be killed. Your life can be taken. If that happens, what the Lord Jesus is saying, don't fear them. How? Write this down. Fear in the face of persecution. You say, Jeff, that is natural. Fear in the face of persecution. The stronger the persecution, the greater the amount of fear. It's very natural. I agree. It is very natural. But fear in the face of persecution can be overcome. How? By fearing God more than we fear them. Fear God more. You say, Jeff, do you have fear of God? Are you afraid of God? I have a definite fear of God. I literally alluded to it unplanningly this morning as I started the message talking about calling deeper. God is completely sovereign. He's in control. So I am fearful, yet I love him and I know that he loves me. So he has all the power. 
So this is the person that can decide, who will decide your eternal destiny. It will be heaven or hell. There should be a measure of fear for God. Not fear for those who can only kill our body. But the way to overcome natural fear of persecution is to fear God more. Guys, I want to ask you a quick question. Is your awareness of God's presence strong enough that it not only gives you comfort and strength, but it actually protects you against sinning because all the while you know if I commit that sin, God is watching. These soldiers didn't have it. They knew that something supernatural had happened, but fear of Pilate and the love of money made them go out and do something that they knew was a lie. And all indications are they've been in hell for the last 2,000 years. Number three. So this last point, we're going to kind of jump back and we're going to finish. I'm kind of going to tell you right now, we're not going to finish with the big, long, drawn-out invitation. It's not going to be goosebump moment, as I said. It's going to be more, let's equip our minds with why do we really believe that the Lord Jesus Christ has been resurrected. And I want to offer you, again, just gleaning from the text. It's not actually any of the certain verses. But let's finish with kind of training our minds why we believe, one of the reasons we believe what, what we believe about Christ. Third point this morning is the strong evidence, the strong evidence of Jesus' disciples. Let's finish there this morning. And then after this, in two weeks, we come back and we're talking about the Great Commission. The strong, you say, Jeff, do you really believe that Jesus has risen from the dead? Oh, absolutely. Why? Well, there's an empty tomb. Okay, that's part of it. Why? The Bible says so. Okay, it says he rose again. Absolutely. That is enough. But if that's not enough for someone, then all I'm going to pr- try to impress upon you the next few minutes is look at the disciples. Look at their life. Study their life. How they lived following the resurrection of Christ is the dead giveaway that this really happened. Look at their life. What is their reaction to things? Go with me if you would, Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. Flip over there quickly, Romans 10. We're noticing the strong evidence of Jesus' disciples. Romans chapter 10. Look at verse 9, very familiar verses. So we have, you say, there's two ways to get to heaven, right, Jeff? Okay, well, one is if you keep the law of God. Perfectly. Perfectly. If you've ever told any kind of lie whatsoever, ever, if you've ever taken the name of the Lord in vain, if you've ever looked at someone lustfully, you're done. And I know you already have done those things because you were born in sin. You have no chance to keep the law as a method of salvation. That doesn't work. Not one, only one person has ever perfectly kept all the law of God, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. All of us have broken the law of God, so don't even tempt that method. The second method of trying to get to heaven is what... Romans chapter 10 calls the righteousness of faith. The righteousness that is received by faith, by believing. Watch verse 10, Romans 9. Romans 10 verse 9. Because if you, listen to what the Bible says. Here's the gospel. If you confess. The idea of confess means God says something and you agree with it. Have you ever done this? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. We sang it a while ago, first song this morning. But it's not just say, okay, I can say those words, Jesus is Lord. No, 
Do, do you confess it because you honestly believe Jesus is Lord? Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is my Lord. Look at verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe, uh, believe means the idea of you believe it fully so much that you're resting in this knowledge, you're convinced. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. The confession follows the belief of the heart. Write this down. How important is the resurrection? Jesus' resurrection is a primary, fundamental, I don't even know if I had that word, it's a primary fundamental of the Christian faith. It's a primary fundamental of the Christian faith. To what degree? Hey guys, listen. The resurrection of Christ is so central that every Christian for the last 2,000 years, they all believe in the resurrection of Christ. Not one Christian has rejected the resurrection of Christ, but believed the other things the Bible says. To be saved, it's so important, you have to believe in the resurrection of Christ. It's a primary fundamental. It's not a secondary belief doctrine of Christianity. It's certainly not a tertiary. It is top shelf primary. This doctrine is so important that the deity of Christ proven by his death and his resurrection. Those three things. Hear it again. The deity of Christ proven by his death and resurrection. Those are what made up the main components of the apostles preaching in the book of Acts. I think that's where we're heading next. Most of you have already figured that out. Unless the Lord changes our heart. What are we going to find? The apostles, as they start changing the world around them, what are they going to be preaching? About the deity of Christ, evidence through his death and resurrection. That's how important. And it's in the epistles, these letters that the apostles wrote. The deity of Christ, the death of Christ and its meaning, the importance of the resurrection just dominates the preaching of the apostles in the book of Acts and throughout the letters that we call the epistles. So did they just start there? Guys, I want to propose to you, if you study their lives, the disciples at first obviously did not believe in the resurrection. It is clear. The evidence is seen in this man named Joseph and Nicodemus. Why are you guys putting 75 pounds of spices on there to keep the stench when his body starts decomposing? Why are you ladies bringing more? Like, pay attention. Why are you ladies bringing more spices on the third day? Because his body's going to be decomposed. They are not anticipating a resurrection. When the ladies go tell the disciples, let this sink in, they go tell the disciples that the Lord is risen, the tomb is empty. Only two of the 11 disciples leave in hiding and safety to actually go check the tomb out. The other nine don't even go check it out. Just you two go check and see. It's scary out there. They're not expecting this. It's the last thing on their mind. Write this thought. Before Christ died on the cross, so let's rewind before that. The theology of the disciples did not yet allow for a resurrected Christ. The theology of the disciples did not yet allow for a resurrected Christ. Hey, do you guys believe that the Messiah is going to be resurrected? No. Why? Because their theology did not yet allow for a crucified, a dying Messiah. 
You guys believe in a resurrected Messiah? Is that what you've come through as reading the Old Testament? No. Messiah, when he comes, this is what they thought. When Messiah comes, he'll live forever. He'll rule and reign forever. They totally missed the part of the, New Test- of the Old Testament where the Messiah would die. They're not expecting a resurrected Messiah because they're not anticipating a dying Messiah. It is literally not part of their thinking. And if you'll notice, the, the, the disciples throughout Mark, Luke, and John are very slow to actually grasp the truth that Jesus has come back to life. But he predicted all of this. If you've written that note, go with me if you would. John chapter 16. John 16. This is the Thursday night. Let's rewind. John chapter 16. Let's see what the Lord tells the disciples on Thursday night. It's several verses, but it's real simple. I think, I think it's pretty simple. There's one area where you can kind of maybe think it's talking about something different. But if you'll really pay attention, you'll see, oh, that is clearly what the Lord was saying. Go back to John 16. Again, this is perhaps in the upper room, maybe having left the upper room. But they're not yet in the garden. Watch verse 16 of John 16. Here we go. Jesus says to the disciples, Judas is gone, quote, A little while, and you will see me no longer. Everybody get it? Hey, guys, in a little while, you're not going to see me any longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So that's what he says. A little while, and you you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of the disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and we will, you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I'm come, going to the Father. What's he talking about? So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. And so, so he said to them, is this what you were asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly I say to you, watch verse 20. Hey, disciples, guys, listen. Here's what I'm telling you. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep. You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. This is coming. You're going to be weeping and crying and lamenting. They're going to be celebrating. They're popping the champagne. You guys are dazed and confused and crying and weeping. Seems like the end of the world. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is given birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So, the Lord tells his disciples, you, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take away your joy from you. Now, you may be thinking... Man, that's talking about when Jesus comes back. Nope. What's he talking about? He's saying, guys, pretty soon, tomorrow, 3 o'clock, I'm going to die, and then you're not going to see me. And then you're not going to see me for a few days. But then I'm going to come back, and when I come back, you're going to go from being totally dejected to being totally elated. They're going to be celebrating at first. You're going to be sad, and then in a moment, You're going to be celebrating, and they're going to be dazed and confused. It's going to flip, and nobody will ever take your joy from you after that. A guy named Laney writes the following. He says, his followers were utterly dejected. 
A short time afterwards, they were extremely elated and showed such reassurance as carried them by a sustained life of devotion through to a martyr's death. Graceview, hang with me right here. Here's our point. One of the main reasons we know that Jesus is alive. There's an empty tomb and there are people who said they saw the Lord alive. But how do we know they're telling the truth? Anybody can say they saw Jesus alive. But it's how they live their life that seals the testimony. There's a man named Simon Greenleaf. He lived in the mid-1800s. This is a long quote, but I'm going to say it. I would really like to read it three or four times. I'm not going to have time. You're going to have to get it like the first time with no doubt, no doubt a few insertions. Simon Greenleaf, mid-1800s was the royal professor of law at Harvard University. I mean, the guy before him and him are what put Harvard Law School on the map. This man wrote about the resurrection of Christ. He studied it out. He applied logic and reason, and here's what he came to the conclusion. Quote, The laws... Go into that scene. Go back 2,000 years ago. Put yourself there. Greenleaf writes, The laws of every country were against the teaching of his disciples. Propagating this new faith, even in the most inoffensive and peaceful manner, they could expect nothing but contempt, opposition, revilings, bitter persecutions, stripes, imprisonments, torments, and cruel deaths. Yet, this faith they zealously did propagate. And all these miseries they endured undismayed, nay, rejoicing. And as one, this is what history shows us, as one after another was put to a miserable death, the survivors only prosecuted their work with increased vigor and revolution. We, we lost them, let's resolve to do even more. Lost another one. They died. They got killed. Those are all facts. That, that is facts of history. Now Greenleaf draws some conclusions. It was therefore, this is a, like one of the most brilliant legal minds America's ever produced. It was therefore impossible that they could have persisted in affirming the truths they have narrated had not Jesus actually risen from the dead. And had they not known this fact, as certainly as they know any other fact. You say, well, maybe they were deceived and really thought they. He allows for that. If it were morally possible for them to have been deceived in this matter, every human motive operated to lead them to discover and avow their error. In other words, every time they're going to be put in prison lose their property, that guy's going to have his head cut off, that guy's going to be stabbed through, this one's going to be crucified, that one's going to be crucified upside down, that one's going to be attempted to be boiled in oil. These are real things. Don't just take them lightly. I mean, real martyrdom. Every time that happens, don't you know, that's about the time they'll be like, are we sure? We are sure, right? That's what they say. Okay, just know. You better know it. And if you've been deceived, there's plenty of opportunities going to make you check. Is, or do we know? Greenleaf writes, to have persisted. Okay, what if they realize, uh-oh, we're too deep in. We've been duped. We were deceived. Now we realize it didn't really happen. He writes, to have persisted in so gross a falsehood after, 
it was known to them, was not only to encounter for life all the evils which man could inflict from without, but to endure also the pangs of inward and conscious guilt. With no hope of future peace, they would know this is a fake, it's a hoax. Here comes Paul. I saw him too. Oh, you saw him too. Yeah. Paul saw him too. Good one, man. See, lots of us have said, no, no, no. He writes again, To have persisted in so gross a falsehood after it was known to them was not only to encounter for life all the evils which man could inflict upon, conflict from without, but to endure also the pangs of inward and conscious guilt with no hope of future peace, no testimony of a good conscience, no expectation of honor or esteem among men, no hope of happiness in this life or in the world to come because they would know it's fake. We're just trying to pull one over on everyone. That would never happen. Greenleaf's point is, you can tell what really happened by watching the disciples' reaction. You want to know, did Jesus really resurrect? Look at the disciples. I'm almost done. I illustrate this this way. If I were a basketball referee, and there's a basketball court this way, and here's a baseline, and here's the sideline. Now picture it. If I'm refereeing... And I'm down here at this corner, and up here come a couple of guys about to run into me, one from each team. And this guy's here, and this guy's here, and they meet, and the ball goes out of bounds, and I can't actually see because I'm shielded by this guy. And I now need to make a call who the ball went out of bounds off of. But I didn't see it. Sometimes, here's what you can do. Look at the reaction of the players. Now, if you watch NBA today, they've learned to try to fake it. They've become great actors. They're almost as good actors as European soccer players getting hurt. Right? It's a joke. But normally, you catch some little JV high school kid. This guy here, this guy here, it went off of one of them. I don't know who it went out of. I'm in a blind spot. But can I watch their reaction? If player A steps out of bounds, grabs the ball, hands it to the ref, and starts telling his, get down here, hurry, they're pressing, hurry, move over here. And he, he does that, expecting the ball back. And player B does this, and the ball goes out of bounds. If he starts walking backwards, pointing that direction. Hey, ref, it's our ball, right? As he's going back on defense subconsciously. See what he's doing? He wants the ball to go that way. That's his team. But the other guy very confidently steps out of bounds. And then the one guy's trying to pull one. Hey, ref, it's our ball, right? Referee now knows. Oh, you guys just told me who it's out of. We're going this way. It's this guy right here who stepped out of bounds confidently. You're trying to mess with me. Watch the reaction of the disciples. I have two last notes to leave you with and we're done. Jesus' apostles became so convinced he had risen from the dead. Please don't just let this be light in your mind. This is huge. They were so convinced that Jesus really had risen from the dead that all but one of them sealed their testimony with a martyr's death. These guys did not die natural deaths. They're put to death very painful deaths, often being imprisoned, often beaten, stoned, beaten with rods, beaten with stripes, with whips. Many times, Paul left for dead after being stoned under a pile of large rocks. But they sealed their testimony one after another with a martyr's death. And I want to propose to you this morning, people do not die for what they know is a lie. You don't die. You get one shot at this life. 
And if he's not the Messiah, what would they be thinking? We want the real one. So we're not going to propagate his story. They keep propagating the story of Christ because they know that he's come to life. And as John R.W. Stott writes, hypocrites and martyrs are not made of the same stuff. They're just not made of the same stuff. Hypocrites are one thing, but when times get tough, they'll quit, they'll squeal, they'll stop. Side note, while you're writing that, you say, Jeff, do you believe we went to the moon in 1969? I've heard both sides. I've heard some say, well, of course we did. I saw it on TV. Yeah, right. I've also seen Superman fly in the sky on TV, too. Stuff can be doctored. You say, so then you think we don't have all that technology and all those things about film and how that never would have made it through the atmosphere and the cameras and all that stuff. Seems pretty convincing. Jeff, do you really believe we went there in 1969? I believe we did. Here's why. I say we did because if we didn't, if it was all a fake and filmed out in Nevada or Arizona and a big hoax to try to show the Russians that we're going to get to the moon before you like Kennedy promised we would by the end of the decade, if it was all a hoax, somebody would have squealed by now. Somebody on their deathbed would have said, hey, by the way, we faked it. What? We faked it. Nobody ever has. These guys, never, not one of them ever said, oh, by the way, I had one shot at life and I'm all broken down. I'm getting ready to have my head cut off. But it's a fake. You don't do that. People don't die for what they know is a lie. Second note. Isn't this interesting? Early Christians, don't you hear it first? Early Christians, everybody with me? Early Christians never gathered at the Lord's tomb for a memorial. Do y'all understand we make more of the empty tomb of Jesus than the first century church did? They never held services there that we know. They went from house to house and in the temple, they didn't have church buildings. Oh, let's all go gather at the tomb. And I'm fine. If I go to Jerusalem one day, I'm going to go to the two best options, what they think is the tomb. We make a bigger deal about it than they do. They never turned it into, uh, into a shrine. Muhammad's people turned his burial place into a shrine because he's still in it. Why did the early church not turn the, the tomb of Christ into a shrine, a memorial? Why? They know he's not in there. That's not him. He's not in there. We got something way better. We saw him. We've touched him. We know he's alive. That became their message. And so I finished today where we really finished, exactly where we finished last week. The disciples of the Lord were fully convinced that Jesus had indeed risen from the dead. Not by his empty tomb, but by his personal, personal, repeated, can I add the words, clear, intimate appearances to them. Yes, the empty tomb speaks loudly. But these men know because they saw Christ personally, repeatedly, clearly, intimately. And that convinced them. Once you've written that, would you tuck that in your Bible and close it just for a moment? I'm about to pray, but I want to leave you with one last question. Once you finish, because I don't want you to be able to see something. All right, ready? So here's our final question. I want you to kind of close your Bible because I don't want you to see last week's notes. Don't. This is honor. I told you you'd be tempted to lie, right? (laughs) Don't take a peek. Don't look. Don't look. Don't let yourself look. Here's my question. 
Last week, we finished with what, what I believe are the three main takeaways from the resurrection of Christ. If you were here, you wrote them down. The resurrection of Jesus proves. Don't say it out loud. I want your mind to go. I'm going to give them to you. But let's pause. I want you, without looking, I want you to start having it so ingrained in your whole theology, your whole way of thinking. Wow. We know Jesus came. He predicted it. They tried to stop it. He came alive. We know it. The tomb is empty. And the testimonies of these people who were there in the first century said they not only saw the empty tomb, and this is how it happened, but they saw him personally, repeatedly, over 500 people at one time. And they ended up sealing their testimony with their death. And so I believe it. I'm not in the first century. I'm 2,000 years later. I believe it. Okay, great. What does it mean? Don't say it out loud. Last week we finished with three things. The resurrection of Christ definitively proves three things about Jesus. Raise your hand if you can remember one of those things. Would you raise your hand? Because you're supposed to have been thinking while I was talking. If you were here, only about 10 people. Give me a moment. I want you to think. Think. If I turned to you right now and said, stand and tell us what the resurrection means. What does it prove? We just finished with these three things last week. Can you think? If anybody is now, oh, I now remember one. Would you raise your hand? Starting to, okay, starting to happen. Is anybody here without looking? Anybody remember two of those things? Anna remembers two. Cool. Oh. Without looking. Does anybody remember all three? Well, let's finish right here. The resurrection of Christ proves that he, you help me, is both what? God and man. He is God and man, proven by the resurrection. The resurrection proves that God the Father, who can tell me? God the Father what? What does the resurrection prove? It proves that God the Father accepted, yes, accepted the death of Jesus on the cross as a sufficient payment for all of your sins. All of your sins have been sufficiently paid for. How do we know? How do we know it was just Jesus saying and he ends up like one of a million other people who were crucified under the Roman Empire. No, no, no. This one is different because he said he was going to come to life again. After being crucified, the third day, God the Father heard it all and God the Father raised him up proving, yes, his death counts and it's sufficient to pay for all of your sins. The third thing it proves about Jesus is that everything, what? Everything he said is true. If he ever said anything, it's all true. I leave you with this. Do you study to learn what Jesus said and then go out and live as if what he said is the truth? We have five very important verses coming up defining verses of the book of Matthew coming up in two weeks please make plans to be here would you stand let's be dismissed Father we thank you for the Lord Jesus and for the resurrection we thank you for the, the proof that you left us that we're not just throwing around some flimsy words that have no backing these are historical facts Lord I thank you that every time that Luke the writer of the book of Acts and the gospel of Luke every time he wrote about a government position. He always used the exact right terminology. Every time he talked about a boundary, 
a geographical boundary in a specific time period, it was exactly right. Lord, I thank you that every time the New Testament refers to government officials and puts them into a historical time period, it is exactly accurate. Lord, I thank you that other documents have proven there really was this man named Jesus. Lord, I don't know if Josephus is in heaven or not. I don't know if he is or not. But Lord, I thank you that though not the word of God, his writings are useful to prove that the gospels are true and historical documents. And Lord, we can take it to the bank that this, these events really happened and that these men and women sealed their testimony of the resurrection of Christ by dying painful, miserable deaths. But they did it with great joy. And Lord, I thank you for that strong evidence. Father, I pray for our group here today as we go forth that we will be convinced of Jesus' resurrection, that we would be ready to defend our faith and know what it means. And then, Lord, I pray, God, if we've been lying that we would turn from that. Lord, if we've been listening to wrong advice and getting the wrong counsel from unbelievers or even people who are not walking with you, Lord, that we would close that door and we would turn to your word and those who are following you, that we'd listen to their advice. Father, we commit this study to you. I pray that you would edify us and equip us with it. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Have a great week.